Amen. Every teacher knows the benefit of repetition. And when you're teaching children especially, uh, the law of repetition is very important. So I'm going to apply that in this book and give you my outline of the book all over again. Chapter 1 is Fellowship with the Father and the Son. How come? That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 is What Happens? That's our message tonight. Chapter 3, By Whom? Who does this? Chapter 4, So What? Who cares? And then chapter 5, Whosoever believeth, the faith that overcomes the world. And I hope that that will help you. So tonight, chapter 2, the heading is, What Happens? And as you go down this chapter, I find 10 things that happens. The number one is verse 1, a new hatred of sin. These things write I unto you that ye sin not. There's a miracle in itself. A sinner that doesn't want to sin. That's the evidence of a change, a new birth. Old things have passed away because we're born of God and we don't want to sin. That doesn't make us sinlessly perfect in this world, but we can honestly say we don't want to sin. We hate sin. Verse 3, this is number 2 in the list of 10, a new love for God's Word. And hereby do we know in heart that we know Him in heart if we keep His commandments. Number 3, verse 8, a new walk in the light. Verse 8, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. I've heard many people giving their salvation testimony, and they say it's like the, the light comes on. Suddenly, they begin to see where before they were blind. Number four is verses 9 to 11, a new love for fellow Christians. Now, that's a miracle. Some people think that Christians ought to be perfect. We're far from it. But we love fellow Christians. And it says it right here, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. Don't believe him. If you have no interest in other Christians, don't be telling us you're walking in the light. That's one of the proofs of our conversion. Verse 12, we have a new liberty in Jesus' name. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Isn't that a great thing? To be able to say, my sins are forgiven. That's the gospel. That's the assurance that comes from the miracle of the new birth and the Word of God. Number six is a new victory over Satan. Verses 13 to 14, and a victory over the world, verses 15 to 17. Number seven now, we get a new loyalty, and that is a love for the Father versus the world. The world is always claiming us. The world is always seeking to drag us back. But now we love the Father, and you see that in verses 18 and 19. Verse 20, a new understanding 
but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. That doesn't make me an encyclopedia, by the way. It doesn't mean that we literally know everything as Google might know it. But we know the gospel. We know God. We know His Son. We are born of His Spirit. And we have everything required for faith and practice. That's the equipment given to the Christian. For number nine, a new abiding in the Son. And you'll see that, let that therefore abide in you. And down in verse 28, and now little children abide in Him, just like the branches in the vine. Number 10 is a new test of the new birth. Verse 29, if ye know that He is righteous, ye know in heart that every one that doeth righteousness is born of him. There's a new test. And so we can know. And as the Lord says, by their fruit ye shall know them. These are the ten things of what happens. What happens when you're born of God and born of the Spirit? And what we learn from this chapter is that conversion is radical. Every person born again is dramatically changed. Now, I know we have quiet Christians, and we have timid Christians, we have boisterous Christians, we have bold Christians, we have crazy Christians at times, and they have all manner of ways of displaying their profession of faith in Christ. But you're going to see it. You're going to know it because it is the power of God. Now, this fights back against what North America has been plagued with in the last 50 years or perhaps more, easy believism. The notion that you can sign a card and you're a Christian. The notion that you can just casually say, well, I want to be, uh, I want to be changed. You know what they changed Billy Graham's crusade to? Power to change. Uh, that's their brand now, power to change. Now, of course, Christians are changed, but it is the power of God unto salvation. Now, conversion is very easy because it's God's work. No one can convert a sinner, only God. It's a miracle. We can pray for it, and we do. We can preach that God by His Spirit may enlighten that person, but it takes the power of God the Holy Spirit to bring the light into that soul. But the miracle of conversion in your soul is so powerful and dramatic that you will never be the same again. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, dramatically changed. All things pass away and all things become new. Now, I want to come tonight to three reasons. Three reasons, just to sum up this chapter, why conversion is radical. That we don't want this piecemeal, weakling, powerless gospel, easy believism. 
we believe in a salvation that is all of God and will produce Christians with real fruit. And again, I have to balance that statement, but sometimes it's less fruit than we would like. Sometimes it's what Jesus said, some 60, some 30, some 60, some 100. But there will be fruit. There will be clear evidence of a new life. And some of those 10 things we looked at will certainly happen. So number one then, conversion to Christ is radical because converts are made to know God in their hearts experimentally experientially, if you wish. Now, a repeated word in this book, as we've learned here in chapter 2, is this word, know, gnosko, to know in heart. And I must emphasize that. I must draw that reality out to your attention so that you grasp when the Bible talks about knowing God. It's not just about able to read a catechism or recite a catechism. It's about that knowledge in your soul, as Henry Scargill put on the front of that book. This kind of knowledge to know God in heart is the very genius of the whole thrust of John's message to Christians. And we have read through those verses, so I'm going to leave it there. I come now to just a little bit of application. I was talking to a young preacher yesterday. Uh, he's actually coming to preach in this church before long, and we got talking about preaching, and I say, I always advocate that if you were to write out your sermon, your application should be about 20% of the wording. So, if you were to highlight it, color it in, whatever you do, you would have 20% of your page highlighted. That's application. And that is what we call in preaching the so what time. Oh, you've got this great truth. What do I do with it? What does it mean to me today in Calgary in 2023? when it's 24 degrees outside. Real, personal, today, rubber-meet-the-road application. Well, in practical terms, this means that all believers will hate sin and will live a new life of fleeing from sin. Now, we live in a world of the curse, a world where sin is all around us, and it doesn't matter if you were to go and start a new colony in some uh, very sparse part of the country, sin will catch up with you. You'll never be free in this world from temptation, whether it's in your own flesh or in the carnal ways of men. But this now becomes the goal of every convert. I want to live free from sin. I want to be turned away from every avenue of sin. I don't want to pursue it. I don't want to allow it into my life. And when I am in the midst of it, I want to get out. 
That is the new attitude. And this sin, when it happens, demands cleansing. And John begins the book on that. He says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This book is not about sinlessness. You can't join the holiness movements who have taught about a second blessing where Christians get to the point where they will be beyond temptation and beyond sinning. John teaches these people there is a provision that when you are tempted and you feel the plague of sin in your own heart and life, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and we can go to him for cleansing. Now, that, again, in real terms, means that we're going to keep the commandments. We're going to keep the commandments. It's a very sad thing that even in Reformed circles, there has been this new covenant notion that the Christian is no longer under the law. And they have done with the Ten Commandments, the moral law, what we properly do with the Levitical law. We say that the Levitical law, that form of worship, when Christ died on the cross and the veil was torn in two, that that way of worship by sacrifices and Levitical laws is over. But New Covenant, they do the same thing with the moral law. And they say, we're now in the New Testament, we're under grace, not under law. It's really not a whole lot different from what dispensationalists have been doing for a very long time since Jay and Darby. But we are under the law as a rule of life. We're not under its condemnation. We're not under its curse. We're not under its, con its control in that we are on bondage. But we are under the law as the rule of life. And I'll tell you why. The Ten Commandments are really the expression of God's heart. The moral law has its source in the heart, the nature of God. God hasn't changed, and He still doesn't want us to break the first commandment of idolatry, having some other God. That has not changed. And you can go down the line, every one of those commandments and everything that it implies and infers, when we break those commandments, it's sin. And the moral law, the Ten Commandments, becomes imperative to the Christian that hates sin. I remember when I was 18 years old, about a month before I was converted, I was sitting under the preaching of the gospel week by week, and I wanted to read the Ten Commandments. And I was so ignorant of the Bible, I didn't know where to go. My sister, who's six years younger than me, she'd have been 12 years old that time, she was getting picked up every Sunday morning to go to Sunday school at the Free Presbyterian Church in Oma. She had a shorter catechism, and I knew the Ten Commandments were in there. And I went to her room one Sunday, and I searched for the, the shorter catechism. I wanted to read the Ten Commandments. Now, I was yet without, I had not yet called on the Lord to save me, but you can see that the Lord was working in me. Why would any 18-year-old want to go searching to find the Ten Commandments? 
true conversion is the, the law of God written in our hearts. And it doesn't stop when you ask the Lord to save you. In reality, you're only beginning. And we need the Ten Commandments as Christians as never before. And one of the great tragedies in our nation is to see the Ten Commandments taken out of schools and government buildings and so on. But let it not be taken out of the church. That would be a double tragedy. You need the Ten Commandments. It is the law of our life. It tells us what's right and wrong, good and evil. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 sums up our testimony. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things pass away and all things become new. So that's the first one. It's radical because we are born of God in our hearts. Number two, conversion to Christ is radical because converts, God converts souls through the power of His Word. Now, look at chapter 2, 3 in this uh, chapter 2 here. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Now, we could debate over the scope of this statement about God's commandments, but the bottom line for a Christian is, if it's in the Bible, it's my guide. If it's written in the Word of God, no matter what denomination or church I belong to, no matter who the preacher is, if it's written in the Bible, it's God's Word for me, and God commands me to follow that Word. Now, we are born again by that Word. In the book of Peter, 1 Peter 1, 23, and I'll give you a few seconds just to turn there, 1 Peter 1, 23, <clears throat> being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God. That's why we have to go forth with the Bible. Every true convert traces their conversion to the Bible. Sometimes it's just Bible reading on its own, like our minister in Berry, FPC. He was converted just by reading the Bible all alone. Other people, well, they learned the Bible from their mother's knee. They learned the Bible all their lives. Some people have come under the preaching of the Bible. But the Holy Spirit's instrument, the means, the tool that the Spirit of God uses is always the Word. And missionaries, their work is to preach and teach Jesus Christ. That's their work. They're to preach the Word. If we want the Holy Ghost to work, we must use the Word. And so, this Word is written on the fleshy tables of our hearts. And so, it's not just in the Bible. We become now walking and living New Testaments, we're told. So, you're a walking Bible. You've got the same convictions as the Bible. You've got much of the light of the Bible in your soul, and it affects your walk. Now, why is this always the case? 
Well, I've covered that one because the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to convert our souls is the Word of God. Now, our Westminster Confession of Faith confirms this in chapter 1, section 5. And I've got quite a lengthy quote. I'm going to cut it down a wee bit. Um, Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word, capital W, the Word of God, in our hearts. That's how it happens. That's why it's a miracle. It's the work of the Holy Spirit taking the truths, the evidences, the facts, the, uh, the record of this Word, convincing us of it, and burying it right into our very hearts. And so we're not converted by the force of logic alone. And when you're preaching the gospel a while, you're going to find that out. You say, well, if I could only get that person to come to church ten times and I preach to them, surely he's going to get it. Well, we know of people who have been sitting in church all their lives and they don't get it. And it's not really the preacher's fault. Oh, of course, every preacher could do better. Every preacher could make it clearer. That's our aim and desire to be a clear, give the clarity of the message. But unless the Holy Spirit works, all the human effort will not create a new heart. But when they are given a new heart, that new convert will always stand up for the Bible. They will always be on the side of the Bible. And it was Peter again who said that converts desire the sincere milk of the Word. It's natural. That's what babies do. They want milk. As soon as they're born, that sucking instinct is right there. They're ready for the milk. And when you're born of the Spirit, you are immediately loyal, hungry, and yearning that that Word will live and work in your life. And so, this is another test that we are born of God. Anyone that says to me that I don't believe the Bible or I don't believe something in the Bible, they're arguing against the Bible, they're arguing against God, don't tell me you're walking in the light. You're still in darkness because everyone born of God loves the Word. Now, we're, we're not always very perfect interpreters of the Word. That's the big struggle we have in churches. How do we interpret the Bible? How do we understand it? And that's why we have different denominations and different groups and so on. But everyone born of God loves the Word. And if you ask them, do you love the Bible? A true convert will say yes. If someone says, I've got, I've, I've got no confidence in the Bible, you are not born of God. You need a new heart. So, that's number two. Number three, conversion to Christ is radical because it powerfully turns our love away from the world to love the Father. 
We're going to jump to chapter 2, verse 15, where John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is in him. And that's our constant battle. We're in the world. We are tempted by the world. We are lured by it at times. But the born-again Christian says no to the world and yes to loving our Heavenly Father. These are the two opposites, the world versus the Father. And the definition of the world is everything that rules out God, where if you walked in and announced, God is here, people would protest or feel uncomfortable. Some preacher I read of, when he walked into a member's house, he would ask the question, is the fear of God in this house? You would know then whether it's ruled by the world or by the Lord. We've heard the adage that a man is known by his friends, and it's true. Even the schoolboy on the playground, you drop him off at school, and the friends that little boy makes will tell you what's in his heart. If he makes friends with the ungodly, the blasphemer, the crude and the ugly, well, that's where his heart lies. That's his real nature. Like attracts light. But marvelously, when we are born again, we no longer want the friendship of the world. We want to have fellowship with the Father and the Son and fellow Christians. Now, I want to read verses 8 to 11. Uh, this is a chapter study, really, and I don't want to just have you go home tonight and say, boy, we didn't really get down to the text. Let's just read verses 8 to 11 in this context. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, that which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, the true light now shineth. You were born again, you've got new light. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, whether that because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. And you can see the, the darkened soul. Now jump to verse 13. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. So he's commending them. Verse 13 is, is John's heart is full of joy in this. And then he says in verse 14, I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because ye are strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. And then the command, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's as clear as that. It's either or. This is not incremental. This is not piecemeal. You're not halfway up the slope or down the slope. You're either a lover of the world or a lover of the Father. And if you're born again, you will be a lover of the Father. And you will resist the world. You will renounce the world. You will not seek the friendship of the world because you know it will hinder your friendship with the Father. And one of the rules of the Christian life is whatever hinders you when you get on your knees to pray from communion with your heavenly Father, that's the world. That's the spirit that is anti-Christ, against the things of God. You see, we can't give you a long list of do's and don'ts. A church should never do that. We're not going to tell you, have a television, don't have a television, have a radio, don't have a radio, have a TV, have internet or don't have internet, um, go here, go there, and all those things. It would be endless, and you'd be adding to it every, every week. You'd be adding something else to it. But individual Christians born of the Spirit studying the Word, the Spirit of God will do that work. And you'll know what is of the world and what is of the Father. Now, what is wrong with the world? Well, it's angry against God. When we get to chapter 3, we'll see that in Cain comes up. What, what was wrong with Cain? What got into him? He became a murderer of his own brother. It wasn't just that he hated his brother, he hated God. And his brother was going around saying, God has pleased with my worship. God has accepted my worship. And Cain couldn't take it. He was angry against God. And there was a chip on his shoulder. And you're going to meet people that when you tell them they're a Christian, they will treat you as they have a chip on their shoulder. If something against you. Because the world wants your approval. And that becomes the battle now. The world wants you to approve of what they do and say it's good and fine and okay. But the Christian can't say that. We have to say, you need delivered from that. And when we come to the gay agenda that's abroad today, you see that magnified. The gay agenda magnifies everything that's in a worldling's heart because they want our approval. They just don't want us to tolerate them and say, well, you just go and live the way you want to live. They want us to accept their lifestyle and say so. They want us to be allies. That's the term they use. They want everyone else to become allies. And it boggles my mind why in these pride parades you have what you call the nuclear wholesome family, mom and dad, taking their little children to these parades to show them the worst sins imaginable right before their eyes. Why is that? Because the pressure's on to be allies. And as a Christian, you're going to come under pressure of various kinds to agree with the world, to say that you approve of the world, 
and that becomes the battleground. And really, that now becomes the ministry of the church. The church is the place to equip the saints to overcome the world. It's the place of happy fellowship and worship where you are strengthened in faith that you might resist the world. And so I would ask, I would ask this of any Christian, does your church equip you to stand against the world? Does your church give you the ammunition and give you the fortification of heart and mind to say no to the ways of the world and live a new life. And when you do fail, and when you do fall under the powers of temptation, what does the church do to you? Do they come alongside and say, we're here to help you? We're going to pray more for you. We're going to help you on and give you biblical help, personal help, extra time as needed, pastoral care, that you might become victorious. Because this is the real battle in, in, the, in the heart of every Christian. And the church must do its work. And we should be praying every morning, Lord, give me victory over the world today. Don't leave your home. Don't go out into that worldly environment without praying for the victory. Now, in verse 15, you have this choice to make. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You have a decision to make. As a young Christian converted at 18 and a member or an attendee of the Young Farmers Club in our community, and when I think of the things that they did it's pretty innocent to the stuff that goes on in many circles today. But I knew after I was saved I had a decision to make because I can't think of any that professed to be a Christian in that group of young farmers. And they made me the treasurer. And I remember coming to a meeting, bringing the books and the money, and I said, I am quitting. I have become a Christian and I won't be back. And I went to the youth fellowship of OMA FPC, and on the Saturday night they had youth meetings, and one of the choruses that they taught me was, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Now, as a new Christian, I didn't understand the depth of meaning in the, even in that. But there is for every new Christian a decision to make. And it's really an easy one. For me, nobody pressured me and said, look, you've got to do this. Nobody even told me I had to do that. To me, it was just all evident. If I'm going to be a Christian, and if I'm going to walk with the Lord, I can't go there. I can't talk the way they talk. I can't enter into the antics that they get into. It's the world. Mind you, there was no alcohol and drugs and that kind of stuff, but it was just worldly. No interest in the Lord Jesus. Conversion is radical.
And there are some people that want to profess to be saved and profess to be born again, but they just want to go on as, as before, living the old life the same old way. It is not true conversion. Now, one more thing before we close the meeting tonight, and that is conversion to Christ is radical because converts are given an inner anointing of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20, chapter 2. But ye have an unction from the Holy One. An unction from the Holy One. This unction, we talk about unction oil and unction, uh, what do you call it, sticky stuff. Um, ointment, an unction. And in the Old Testament, priests and kings were anointed with oil, and a prophet would anoint them and just pour oil or smear them with anointment. It's going to happen to King Charles, by the way, on, on Saturday. This oil is coming from Jerusalem. The Episcopalian something or other from Jerusalem is going to be at the coronation, and he's the one that's got the oil, and it's very special oil from Israel with different spices and concoctions to make it the anointing oil of the king. I can only hope it'll do some good. My confidence is not very high, I have to say. But if we have an unction from the Holy One, the oil is the type or the emblem of the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, what a difference. What a difference. Now, notice verse 20 starts with but. But. What does that mean? Well, previously or just prior to that, it says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had, if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. They didn't have this anointing. They were deceived. They fell into error, apostasy. And then John says, But ye have an unction. And there is this enlightenment. What does the unction do? And ye know all things. Now, I struggle to limit the all things. I don't claim to be omniscient. I don't claim to know all things, but I can say that I have assurance of peace with God and fellowship with God through the Lord Jesus. And it's that unction that makes our Christianity experiential. I know in heart. It's not just what I learned in a classroom or a Sunday school room. I know it in my soul. I have been born of God. In verse 27, we're told that this anointing will remain. The anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. It continues on and on. When you're born again, you'll never be unborn. There is no such thing as falling away from grace finally. Now, we can grieve ourselves and grieve the Lord and become very pathetic and weak at times, but that anointing, that inner life of the Spirit, will live on. And then we're told right at the end of 
the chapter, verse 28, Now, little children, abide in Him. Abide in Him. The secret of Christian living, abiding in the Lord. Like the branch and the vine, Jesus said, Without me ye can do nothing. And your fruit, your Christian living, your joy, your fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, meekness, and so on, those nine fruits of the Spirit, where do they come from? Not out of your own heart, but out of abiding, remaining in communion, union with Jesus the vine. And the branch will only be as productive as the flow from the vine. And your life will only be as godly and as victorious as you abide in the Lord. This is prayer life, your meditation life, your quiet time, your personal communion with God. And at our prayer meeting on Tuesday night, I advocated, don't stop praying until the joy flows. Too often, Christians pray a little bit and stop. Keep praying until you get the joy. It's like the oil business. You don't stop drilling until the oil flows. And you've got to tap into the Lord Jesus Christ, your vine, and you've got to enjoy the life of Christ in your soul. And John said, these things have I written unto you that your joy might be full. And that's the theme of the whole book. Everything in John, 1 John chapters 1 to 5, is all about leading us to this fullness of joy. I trust you will have that in your soul tonight and through the week, and more and more in your Christian life. When the Lord gave us that wonderful parable, I am the vine, you are the branches. We abide. We're to abide. The, the, the command is to abide in Him. Will you bow to that and focus on your personal union communion, living in the vine? And that leads us into the fellowship, the blessed joy, of the Father and the Son. Remember what John said? That, that our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And you remember what we learned about fellowship? It's koinonia, partnership. It's not just imitation. It is entering into, and we're to abide to enjoy that. May the Lord take this chapter and make it a blessing to your own heart. I realize I'll not be back for a few weeks to preach chapter 3 to you, but pray that the Lord will use that. In fact, I should share with you that next month, at the end of May, I'm going to Singapore to preach this whole book. They want six messages at their Bible camp. So, I've got an introductory message and then a message on each chapter. That should help us through. And I trust you'll pray for that as well, if you would, that the Lord would use His Word in all of our hearts. We have a closing hymn, but where's the time at? Now it's too late. Boys and girls need to get home. Thank you for lending your listening ears tonight, boys and girls. I hope that some of these things have entered your heart. Let's bow in a closing prayer. 
Father, we thank Thee for Your loving kindness. We thank Thee for helping us to dig into the Word of God tonight. Oh, Lord, we love Thee. We love Your name. We love Your Word. We love the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. Help us to tell this to a dying world. Bless Your people. Go with us on our homeward way tonight. Be with us through the week. Keep us in Your loving care. Bless those who face the world, and sometimes in a terrible way, awful oppression of the world. Oh, God, give the victory. Make your people to be overcomers. We pray for children. Lord, deliver them from the awful agenda of this present evil world. And now, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we bless Thee and thank Thee in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.